Let's pray. Grant unto us, O Lord, ears to hear your voice, eyes to see your truth, and the heart to do your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the first part of chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul extols the glory of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. He affirms for the Christian the riches of our salvation and every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. Quite naturally then, he goes on to pray, giving thanks to God for all the saints. Paul's prayers are big. They're really big. And they're big because they're a response to an all-encompassing vision of the purpose and will of God in Christ Jesus. And that vision sees us as the recipients of God's abundant grace. And it sees Christ as the Lord of all things in heaven and earth. And Paul's prayers are are not only majestic, they're also quite long. And in part that's because he regularly intersperses his prayers with doctrine and teaching. It's as if every blessing that Paul gives thanks to God for, it brings to his mind a cascade of implications. If grace is pressed down full and overflowing, that's because no single blessing stands alone or is unrelated to all the promises of God, accomplished in Christ Jesus and sealed by his Holy Spirit. So let's have a look at Paul's prayer. He's prompted to prayer by everything he's described in verses 3 to 14. He's confident that he's praying for genuine believers, chosen in Christ and granted every spiritual blessing. And he knows that they're genuine because as he says in verse 15, he's heard of their faith and he's heard of their love for all the saints. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a reputation like that? For all the churches, Paul prays constantly. And his prayer starts in verse 17. Paul asks that God would give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now that's a bigger prayer than we may at first think. For as we know, wisdom is more than knowledge. But it's also more than the understanding that comes from age and experience. Asking God for a spirit of wisdom and revelation is a prayer that we might know God intimately, that we might know his mind, his purpose, and his will. And certainly that's revealed objectively as we read the Holy Scriptures, but it's also revealed directly through God's Holy Spirit. A spirit of wisdom and revelation, therefore, is the work of God's Holy Spirit in us, applying God's Holy Word to our mind and our heart. For spirit and word don't work independently or autonomously. They work together. As Paul says in verse 17, so that we may know God better. Knowing God better is always about deepening our relationship with him and can never simply be about gaining more knowledge about him. Paul's prayer continues in verse 18. And there he prays also that 
the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. Now, who would have thought that we could see with our heart? And yet Paul, of all the New Testament writers, appeals most to our intellect. Here he is insisting that a relationship with God is an issue of the heart. And of course Paul's right. For God's in the business of not just changing foolish and benighted minds, but changing wicked and deceptive hearts. To have the eyes of our hearts enlightened is to align our mind and our will to that of God's. And God's purpose and will is always for our good and for his glory. When we know and love God with our hearts enlightened, then as Paul says in verse 18, we shall know the hope to which God has called us. And hope is not the uncertain possibility of what we may long for. Our hope is the sure certainty of what God has promised. And God's promise, in verse 18, is that having called us to himself, we, with all the saints, shall be made God's glorious inheritance. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm pretty sure that if we have that truth merely in our heads, then it won't excite us greatly. And nor will access to God's incomparably great power be our realised experience. That only happens when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. And that's exactly what the Ephesians needed. For they were surrounded by a culture of strong magical belief. There, very close to Ephesus, was the temple of Artemis, Diana, one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. As a building, it was altogether imposing. As a religion, it was a fearful cult, a cult in which Diana reigned as queen over zodiacal powers and all the gods of the underworld. As an economic system, it was altogether pervasive and it regarded the gospel as a threat to its livelihood. If the Ephesians were looking simply at what's in front of them and all around them, then all that they would see would be a monumental power directly opposed to God and the gospel. And now, Paul's saying to the believers that with the eyes of their hearts enlightened, they will know that greater than the power of Artemis is the incomparable power of God for them who believe. And that power, well, it not only guarantees a blessed and a future hope, it's also available as a present reality. Paul then spends, from verse 19 to the end of the passage, in chapter 2, verse 10, showing the Ephesians just that. The power of God that works in them is the very same power, as Paul says in verse 20, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at God's right hand in heavenly places. And here Paul takes a doctrinal excursion to expound for us exactly how great that power is working in us. He says in verse 21 that the power at work in we who believe is the same power that exalted Christ far above all rule and authority 
and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age but also in the one to come. Paul's almost stumbling over his own words and as he heaps up sufficient superlatives to describe Christ's exaltation in this age and the next. And under Christ's feet, we read in verse 22, are all things. There is not one square inch in the whole universe that is not subject to the authority of Christ Jesus the Lord. And just when we begin to get our head around that, Paul says that Jesus is the head over everything for the church. That Jesus' lordship over all things is for the benefit and the good of we, the church. In the future, that means the church shall be seated with him in heavenly places. And in the present, it means that the authority and power invested in Jesus is now at work in the church, in the people of God. That's you and me. So there is nothing to fear from Artemis or any other power on earth, be it good or evil, economic or magical, demonic or idolatrous, for the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. For God's incomparably great power is at work in we who believe, we the church. And so intimate is our union with Christ that we the church are described as his body over which he is the head. And just as all of Christ's power and authority fills the church in the present, so too will Christ's power and authority fill all things in heaven and on earth, everything in every way. And in our union with Christ, we have already received the foretaste of that end. In chapter 2, Paul continues to describe God's incomparably great power to we who believe. At this time, however, the power is not described in terms of Christ's exaltation, but in terms of salvation, one for us in Christ Jesus. The sentence that Paul starts in verse 1, he doesn't pick up again until verse 5. That is, verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God, verse 5, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Again, after verse 1, Paul makes a doctrinal excursion. This time he wants to explain what he means by dead in transgression and sin. Paul is saying that those who are bound in sin are doomed to death, and so already belong to death's realm. The very thing that they think of as being life is but a foretaste of death, because it's life without God. As Jesus says in John's Gospel, to believe is to cross over from death to life. Transgression and sin are simply the fruit of a deathly existence apart from God. And that happens when, as Paul says in verse 2, we follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And the ways of the world are the cravings of sinful men and women. So, for example, gluttony or greed. 
The ways of the world are the lust of the eyes, like pornography and envy. The ways of the world are boasting of what we have and what we do. So pride and materialism and arrogance. And as for following the ruler of the kingdom of the air, we do that readily when we believe Satan's lies that flatter us. And we listen to his accusations that condemn us. Without God, we simply gratify our sinful natures and we follow the desires of our sinful thoughts. Without God, we are lost in sin. We are objects of God's wrath. To choose life apart from God does not make us neutral or indifferent to him. It makes us his enemy and opposed to him. There is no neutral ground with God. Either we live under the Lordship of Christ Jesus, or we live as though dead in our transgressions and sin against God. And even though that is the experience of everyone, before they hear the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, that God now, as we read in verses 4 and 5, in the greatness of his love, in the richness of his mercy, he makes us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And if you want that in one short summary sentence, it's at the end of verse 5. It is by grace you have been saved. Now I don't know of many sentences in the Bible that are sweeter than that one. For in less than ten words, it gets to the very core of the gospel and the very heart of what it means to be reconciled to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But to be saved means even more than sins forgiven and friendship with God. Because salvation means the riches of God's grace lavished upon us. For in saving us, that God has, as we read in verse 6, he has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Again, our exaltation and every spiritual blessing that we have is tied directly to our union with Christ. And again, it's not ultimately about us. For all that God has purposed and accomplished in Christ for us has been, as we read in verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Everything that God has purposed and accomplished in Christ shall redound to God's praise and glory and honour. We are, we the church, we are, if you like, the showpiece of God's incomparable glory and grace. The day is coming when all rulers and authorities and powers and angels and demons and all things in heaven and on earth will be brought under one head, even Christ. And when that day comes, we the church shall be exhibit A. We the church shall be the evidence that God presents to show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
And even now, God can point to the saints in Inverell and say to all the powers of heaven and earth, have a look at my church at Inverell. Though they're foolish and weak and lowly and despised by the standards of this world, here they are worshipping me. My grace alone has brought them thus far, and only my grace will lead them home. Brothers and sisters, this is all for us, but it's not about us. And because sinful human hearts find that distinction a little too subtle, and even subversive of our pride, Paul goes to the trouble of telling us again in verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved. Now you might think, well that's a pretty clear statement. Salvation by grace is a gift from God, and therefore glory goes to God. But just to be really, really, really clear, Paul goes on to spell out what should be obvious. If salvation is by grace, then it doesn't come from us. It's a gift of God. It can't be earned by works, and therefore we can have no reason to boast. We are not partners with God in our own salvation. We don't meet God halfway or any part thereof. Salvation is entirely a work of God, from beginning to end. It was his idea, his plan, his son, his power, his mercy and his grace alone that that brought us from death to life, from enemy to heirs with him in Christ Jesus the Lord. It's hard to believe that Paul could make himself any clearer. And yet every other religion in the world and even some parts of Christianity still think that we can fill up what's missing from the work of Christ and add our own merit to the gospel of Christ. And that's exactly what people do when they seek to justify themselves before God. Religious people think that they can do that by keeping the rules and proud people think that they can do that and claim merit. But both are absolute folly. For we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. In fact, so clear is Paul that he feared being misunderstood in the opposite direction. Then as now, some have argued that if there's nothing we do that gains salvation, then why do anything when granted salvation? But that's a thankless logic that reveals a proud heart. And it's a travesty of the gospel of grace. That salvation wasn't granted to us because we manifest the glory and righteousness of God. That salvation was gifted to us so that we might do just that. For salvation is about God's glory and not ours. That we're God's fallen creation, we're born dead in our sins. And therefore we are incapable and unwilling to glorify God. But in Christ Jesus, we are recreated for God's original intention. That is, that we might do the good works that glorify him, the very same good works that he prepared for us when he chose us in eternity. 
and with the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that's exactly what we would want to do, is it not? Let us pray. Now unto him who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, by whom, through whom and for whom, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, to him who is before all things and in whom all things hold together, to him be glory through the church, for he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him all things are reconciled to God, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. To the only wise God our Saviour, be glory and majesty, power and authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.